the growing sophistication of fake news. Fake news became a household phrase during the last presidential election, as stories with absolutely no basis in fact began to explode in popularity on social media sites, such as Facebook and Twitter. In the years since, the phrase has been used to describe everything from elaborately detailed fake news videos to simple news items that someone in power doesn't particularly like. And almost every day, fake news is making real news. In the past week, Elizabeth Warren's campaign tried to make a point by posting a fake news item on Facebook claiming in the headline that Mark Zuckerberg was endorsing President Trump. Then there was the fake video showing President Trump slaughtering journalists. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Some fake news is outlandish and easy to spot. Some, not so much. Have you ever been tricked? fake news. It comes in many forms, false headlines, doctored photos, doctored videos. Today we're going to talk about the prevalence and dangerous potential of fake news to influence what people believe. Joining me in the studio, Chet Lunner. He is a former journalist and Maine newspaper editor. He's also served as a congressional chief of staff, 9-11 press secretary, Homeland Security intelligence officer, and other positions in the federal government. And joining us from our Bangor studio is Jeannie Borgo. She's president of Internews, a nonprofit international news organization. As always, we want to hear from you. Have you ever fallen for a fake news story? Do you have questions about social media's role in the dissemination of fake news? Our phone number, 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org, tweet at Maine Calling, or post to the Maine Calling Facebook page. Thank you both so much. And, and Chad, I think really... Uh, a good question for this discussion to start with is, what is fake news? And I know that seems like a silly question because it, it means news that's not real. But we have a president who regularly on Twitter calls all sorts of things fake news. What is your definition? Well, that's a great place to start. Um, and I actually turn it around. I know what news is for sure. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually not fond at all of the term fake news. Here's why. There's, there's real news, and then there's propaganda, rumor, satire, lies, slander, gossip, talk radio, innuendo, hoaxes, unconfirmed reports, opinion, hearsay, public relations, commentary, rhetoric, and supermarket tabloid headlines, which is where I get a lot of my news. <laughs> uh, actually, the, I am really sort of uh, disturbed when I hear it used so cavalierly that real news is somehow mixed in with those definitions. We should be more precise about what it is. And it's no wonder that people have a trouble defining it because it's used way too widely. But for the let's let's move back then for the topic of, you know, for the purpose of today's discussion, let's talk about the news that is intentionally generated without any any basis in reality. And, and there does seem to be an explosion of these news stories, mostly on social media, but in other places as well, that just are just patently false. The person who created them not only created them to be patently false, but tried to make them look or feel like a real news story. Well, I agree. And, you know, some of this goes back to uh, third grade, when you can recall 
the latest gossip got everybody excited and interested, and whoever was telling it uh, was very popular for the moment. And I think there are there are uh, human beings who I, I heard someone describe the other day as a professional attention getter, uh, who just can't stand not being in the limelight, and they'll say anything or write anything or produce anything that keeps them in that position. There's this uh, there's this sort of a celebrity status that comes with. Uh, being the source of these things all the time, even though fake news, which generally has uh, intentionally misleading information for some third purpose, even though that's uh, clearly uh, not uh, reliable, people do it because it makes them, in a sense, very popular. Mm. Jeannie Virgo, uh, I want to bring you into the conversation. This is not a U.S. problem. This is an international problem. Yes? That's absolutely correct. And in fact, uh, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, these terms we've been using for a long time in much of the world. And I would say that the implications and impact for much of the world is dramatically worse than what we're facing in the United States. Uh, If you look at a place like Myanmar, where deliberate disinformation campaigns have led to the Rohingya crisis and uh, an exodus of a people from a country, and some people are calling it genocide, and it is directly rooted in deliberate disinformation campaigns. You remain an optimist, though. You, a a lot of us feel overwhelmed, frustrated, you know, just just so discouraged by the proliferation of this, especially those of us who work in you know legitimate journalism operations uh, outfits. Why are you optimistic that fake news is is co- kind of not going to continue to cause such horrible disruption? Well, even though it's really, really complicated, there are solutions to it as well that are growing and proliferating around the world. And that's what makes me an optimist. My organization, we're not actually a news organization, but we support news organizations all over their world, all over the world so they can achieve their maximum potential for the communities that they're serving. And so we're really trying to build the skills for them to do a better job with it. But there, we see four solutions to the disinformation fake news problem. One piece of it, a giant reason it has become such a huge issue is because of the new social media platforms, obviously. They have just such a giant amplification effect. And they research has shown that a piece of disinformation can reach 1,500 people six times faster than a piece of accurate information. It is just more popular, as Chet was saying. So those platforms have an accountability issue that the governments can help hold them accountable, but they themselves can hold themselves accountable. People can hold them accountable. So tech platform accountability, training in critical thinking to at the school level and all you know at many many different levels. Uh, at starving the fake news. A lot of it is based on trolls and there's a whole market out there and people aren't doing it just for political reasons, but they're doing it to make money and they can, but we can starve those trolls. And the most important one and the one that I think Chet would totally agree with is invest in real news, invest in real trusted news. That's the most critical element uh, to solve this problem. Chet. And when Jean talks about the problem being uh, showing up in a worse uh, results overseas, uh, I'm sure she understands uh, or might have been thinking about the situations in India. She mentioned Myanmar, uh, where the fake news doesn't just make people uncomfortable or tilt the political scale. People are killed. They die as a result of the mobs that form around these 
rapidly spreading right. rumors. Exactly. And uh, uh, that's, you know, it's a very serious problem in places where people don't have really alternatives. In these developing countries, there are no existing newspapers or other news sources. So, you know, whatever shows up on your phone is is gospel, uh, and people act on it in very violent, very extreme ways. I um, read this morning that we're going to be seeing during this next election cycle videos that don't look doctored, that look real, that that's where technology is now, and that it's going to be almost impossible to distinguish what's a real piece of video and what's fake. Chet, have you seen this already? Yeah, I think that's where the term deepfakes uh, first uh, came about. It's it's the video version of fake news, uh, which are uh, there was one currently in the headlines that shows uh, uh, a scene from uh, a movie where there's a mass shooting of people in a church, and it superimposes Donald Trump's head on it. Now, this isn't designed. This is to carry that message, not necessarily. You know, it's one step short of actually you'd swear it was Trump doing it or in another recent case uh president former president Obama making a statement that he never made you'd swear it was real i mean the technology is just getting scary Jeannie, what yeah, is your advice prove, of, yeah, yeah go ahead I was going to say to prove that, again, internationally, this is sometimes a lot worse already. Already in the country of Gabon, a disputed deep fake fake video contributed to an attempted coup in that country. So exactly the Obama example happened in Gabon, and it led to an attempted coup. What tools, Jeannie, would you say that those of us having this conversation today, people listening to this conversation, might have in helping them figure out what's real and what's fake? The the issue of investing in critical thinking by the consumers of information is really complicated. Um, There are lots of different uh, uh, pilot projects and different attempts to capture this. A a real solid way is certainly at the education and the school level, weaving these types of critical thinking into your broadest curricula. But that's a really long-term approach, and we see that a lot of the problems actually end up coming from people who are newly coming online, which is often often elderly populations and things like that. So that's the long-term educational solution has has some limited impact. There's a lot of fact-checking going on, lots of fact-checking organizations out there. Again, it's a little bit unproven about how effective they are, and one of the challenges with that is that uh, people, uh, rumors and lies reinforce your own preconceived notions of things. And so even if somebody's saying, hey, that's not true, uh, if you think it's true, it's going gonna, it's gonna to con- con- deepen your conviction that it's true. And so there's there I would say there aren't easy solutions. There's lots and lots of experimentation going on. And that's what I we're putting our money on is, 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 is that experimentation with the fact checking, with the d- deeply embedding in curricula, and then reaching some of these populations that you're not really thinking about who really, really need it, particularly people newly coming online. And I would add to that, uh, my little slogan on this topic is it's the answer is in the classroom, not the newsroom, uh, that people as young as possible need to start learning uh, their civic duties, A, as Americans uh, be, to, be, to uh, become and stay aware and knowledgeable citizens. You, you really have a sort of a civic responsibility to do that, that I'm not sure is emphasized much in schools anymore. And then to, to sharpen our ability to 
serve the kids or develop media literacy where you can, there are ways to spot it. Just, uh, you know, if you're uh, trained to do it, you and I could certainly as having been in the business long enough, you know, you're just suspicious about something. We have to teach people how to do that with, and there are curriculum offered that are free and online from places like the museum in Washington, D.C., or the Pointner Institute. Uh, or And if that fails, then there's also a new effort uh, by Stephen Brill and some others to uh, operate this thing called NewsGuard, which puts sort of a, it's a red, yellow, green rating on anything that uh, they see online that, that will uh, validate the trustworthiness of that information. So, so there are things available off the shelf right now. Um, it's, that's true, and, and, and we need to, of course, reach children. But the reality is that this is all flying around right now, instantly. Yeah. And, you know, I think both of you probably know people. I have friends on social media who are intelligent, thoughtful people who have shared fake news. Just in the last 24-hour cycle, someone I know shared an article that said Nancy Pelosi had taken money from Social Security to pay for the um, to pay for the impeachment inquiry. Uh, another friend of this person's debunked it, but his response was it could have been true. And so, <laughs> isn't that part of the problem that there's confirmation bias going on? And if something, depending on what your political leanings are or what your life experience is, seems like it could be true, maybe your guard is down a little bit. There is a psychological your, element your... to this. And it's uh, the confirmation bias you speak of is, is certainly in play in many of these things because they're not provable. You know, when I was a reporter, the standard for writing something in a story was not only that it was true, but it was provably true. So you can't even, even if you believed it, and, and it looked obvious, you had to get backup information. That's not happening, and uh, we need to go back to those standards. Jeannie? Yeah, I was going to say it, it, it. what happens is sometimes deliberate disinformation becomes uh, 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 more casual misinformation because people share it so much. So they may not be deliberately trying to share a lie, but they just believe it, and so they're sharing it, and that's where we get that giant amplification effect on social media. And it affects things, not just politics, but it affects things like health outcomes. If you think about some of the vaccine debates um, in the Philippines, for example, in 2015, about 95% of the population supported vaccination. And in just two years, due to just misinformation, people putting out, not deliberately doing this, but just sharing misinformation, it's gone down to 32% of kids are getting vaccinated now in the Philippines. And that's an, another area besides politics where the, the devastation of this is real and affects, affects lives every day. We're talking about fake news on Maine Calling. We invite you to join the conversation. Our phone number, 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email to talk at org, tweet at Maine Calling, or post to our Facebook page. I want to start with this um, interesting post on Facebook from Dan. Dan writes, there needs to be legislation against spreading disinformation, penalties both for individuals and corporations. On its face, Chet, that may seem like a good idea, but there's there's a big problem with legislation, isn't there? Yeah, we've uh, traditionally stayed away from those people as much as possible <laughs> for uh, the, the separation of uh, you hear about the separation of church and state, but the separation of newspapers and news media and state is also uh, pretty pretty uh, important. Uh, 
Uh, but there is, a, there is a way to do it, and I was just reading uh, this morning about a, a settlement that someone has received of close to uh, a half a million dollars for the people who, against the people who had claimed the Sandy Hook kids were actors and all that. There was a fake conspiracy surrounding the Sandy Hook massacre. And uh, so they sued them civically, not, criminal, not criminally, but in civil court. And just one, I, I would like to see more of that. And I'm surprised there hasn't been more of it in the, in the past. Sued him for slander? Uh, I assume it was libel or slander. Okay. Or, or, or the, uh, uh, the effect that it had on their lives. Mm. And Jeannie, I want to ask you, um, you know, here in the United States, there won't likely be legislation because of the First Amendment. What are we seeing around the world? Oh, no, it has, again, another devastating effect around the world, uh, amplified all the greater. I totally agree with Chet that, that, that government regulation is really problematic because it tends to lead to a rise in censorship. And there's a lot of countries around the world that love any excuse to censor. And so even our conversations about fake news, that term has become an international term. And governments all around the world are saying, hey, it's fake news. We're shutting it down. And that's what we're seeing. That's how it's how it's playing out around the world. So we are fans of platform accountability, the platforms themselves taking more um, accountable control over their content, um, that public pressure, as Chet was describing, even through the courts, um, those are much better paths. And well, it's no accident in the history of revolutions around the world that the first thing that the new government wants to do is take over the radio stations and shut down the newspapers so they can control that information. The flow of information is critical to us. We sort of take it for granted, but you can see it in those examples. Well, let's talk about the social, you know, the pressure on social media platforms because just last week, Facebook um, announced a change in advertising policies to exempt politicians and political parties from rules banning misinformation. Um, because of that, we saw Elizabeth Warren's campaign post a false headline uh, as a challenge, saying Facebook ought not be profiting over you know, from fake news, profiting from lies. This is something very much up for debate right now. Um, Facebook is clearly, or at least at this point, not feeling the public pressure and saying this is not our job. Chet. Facebook and the other platforms uh, are really struggling with their role. Uh, in 1996, there was a, there was a law passed, uh, the Communications Act, which granted them uh, immunity from suits. We were just talking about the importance and how powerful uh, a uh, libel lawsuit can be. And that has kept newspaper and uh, TV reporters and radio reporters on their toes for years because you don't, you're responsible for what you publish. In the case of the Facebooks of the world, the federal law that uh, addresses this was set up so that they had more freedom and flexibility and they do not. You can't sue Facebook for something someone else puts on Facebook. Now, as part of this new discussion, like we're having here today, the Congress is looking at how to tweak that and make them more responsible. But the Zuckerbergs of the world do not understand how to be editors in the sense or producers in the sense that we know from traditional media. They're still trying to figure that out. But Congress, I think uh, you'll see them uh, held more accountable. We'll go to John calling from Portland. Hi, John. Go ahead. You're on main calling. Hello. Uh, yes, I, I called basically the mea culpa for yesterday spreading fake news or um, or one of the other terms that your guests would prefer to fake news. Uh, but it was uh, it was some traditional media 
uh, I saw it first on Twitter, and then I found it on the Daily Mail, so I thought it must be legitimate. Uh, it was the uh, statement that uh, our president called the president of Italy, whose name is Mattarella, that he called him Mozzarella. <laughs> uh, apparently, that isn't true. <laughs> and I repeated it on Twitter. Uh, I also called our president a triple nut biscotti. And uh, the tweet was uh, retweeted hundreds of times um, and uh, and liked hundreds of times. And then I basically came to realize it was uh, most likely false. Well, John, I, I appreciate your candor and your honesty and your mea culpa. It's a, it's a funny example, and it's, um, you know, not as dangerous as what Jeannie especially is describing. Um, and I think there are probably lots of people out there who don't have the courage you have to admit that they have done this. Um, but what, Chet, what John's talking about is just that how quickly things can be magnified. Exactly. And that's, uh, that occurred to me when he was speaking. And thank you, John, for your mea culpa. <laughs> I wish more people would do that, too. Uh, is that the emphasis, one of the uh, big problems with this generally is the emphasis on speed. You know, if I get something on my uh, Twitter, then you want to turn it around and share it as rapidly as possible, as far as possible. In fact, the Pew Research Center has a study that shows unequivocally that misinformation and bad news, which is usually more dramatic than the real news, spreads further and faster than any other sort of information. So this emphasis on speed, which we didn't have in the old days, we had 24 hours to put out another new edition uh, uh, has really magnified the problem in ways that I don't think people understand. Sean, thanks for your call. We're it gonna... also highlights. Go ahead, Jeannie. I was just going to say it, it. It also captures that issue about this this current issue with Facebook that they are uniquely different than traditional media because of that exactly that that factor. So as they think about allowing false political advertisements to go onto the platform unchecked. They, they're different than a broadcaster for exactly that right. reason, and they need, we need to think about it much more critically than, than a broadcaster. Yep. We'll go to Ellery, who's calling from Waterville. Hi, Ellery. Go ahead. Hello, and thank you again for a wonderful, wonderful program. A uh, quick story. About 40 years or so ago, in a science magazine, they, they put a composite photo on the image, uh, uh, image on the cover of the magazine, and in the, in the, in the, in the cover, under the cover, they profusely apologized for doing so, uh, a, a composite of a plane and the sky together, because this plane hadn't flown yet. They didn't have images, so they, they put one, a fake one on the image. So my question is, the fakes have been going on for a long time, practically since the invention of photography, double exposures and whatnot. When did, when did this become – I mean, the Internet may be enhancing it, but it's been going on for a long time. When did this start becoming acceptable? Chet? I think I think what Ellery's talking about is, um, you know, the changing images. You know, I remember there yeah. was a famous case in National Geographic moving a pyramid to fit into the um, <laughs> right. the frame. Um, but th there's a big difference here. There is, and it it wasn't acceptable uh, back in the dark ages when I was running a thing called newspapers. I remember people getting into trouble for f just flipping the negative so that the face. You always wanted the face of your subject to look into the print, into the, toward the inside of the newspaper for design reasons. And so sometimes editors would be tempted to flip, you know, a picture of Prince Charles looking at the soccer game so that he fit the page better without altering it in, other, in any other way whatsoever. Even that 
was uh, uh, was a no-no back in the day. I, as to when it started uh, getting looser, I, I don't know. We'll go to uh, Sophie calling from New Hampshire. Hi, Sophie. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm a student at the University of New Hampshire. I'm studying communication, and I've been talking about this issue in one of my classes. Um, I One of the recommendations that my teacher gave me was that um, we would um, – that people take individual responsibility and – work as mediators, and I think maybe a social change in people correcting other people, because right now, especially with family members, it's such a um, hard issue, and it's a very much of a, um, it's very much of an uh, issue where it's hard to address without it being acceptable to mediate or call people out for being wrong. Sophie, I'm so glad you called, and I'm wondering if uh, Jeannie or Chet, you have questions for Sophie as a young person studying this, as a young person who's grown up surrounded by social media. What are you going to do with your degree? Oh, um, I'm really thinking about just going in and helping people and facilitating and mediating sort of public discussions. I think definitely advocating for groups, especially in the um, mental health field, trying to advocate for them and sort of change the narrative of um, sort of neurodiversity and stuff like that. Well, good for you, because uh, and I think that you'll find that what you learn in the communications curriculum is going to be helpful no matter what you do. I have had a series of uh, it's an unusual collection of uh, jobs and many careers, and the common denominator for success was always being able to communicate well. I think that Sophie brings up a really interesting point, though, too, because I think there's, again, a lot of experimentation that we can do in different ways of confronting this problem. We've seen some really fun projects around the world. There's some uh, a contest that, that uh, communities can host that encourage people to try to identify fake or paid news content. And, and it does two things. One is people get really engaged in the process and they're really interested and are looking around for it so they can win this contest. And second, it unearths a lot of stories for the journalist and traditional media to cover because they do uncover all sorts of crazy fabrications out there that show up in online or on, on traditional in traditional media. So fun contests, different ways of convening people to have conversations about it, all of these things really make a difference. I think in that individual agency and your individual ability to to, to navigate this new information environment that we're all living. Sophie, uh, good luck to you, and thanks so much for calling in. Jeannie, what do we know about how the proliferation of fake news has affected confidence in traditional journalism, traditional institutions? Um, there have been studies about this, haven't there? That's, no, that's exactly right. Um, uh, the global PR firm Edelman conducts an annual survey of trust around the world. And for the last four or five years, they've seen a, a dramatic decline in trust for public institutions broadly and the media very, very specifically up until actually this past year. And so we're starting to see glimmers of hope because I do think we can only live under this environment so much. And so as trust is eroding, slowly people are starting to look for trusted voices again. And not surprising, they turn to scientists, authoritative voices, researchers, and the media. And so we're seeing a slow curve back towards trust, particularly for those types of institutions that have long had some trust. 
the, the, the decline continues on for social media platforms. We're seeing just a slight turn in the curve when it comes to trust, trusting traditional media and authoritative voices. A slight trust in the curve, but fewer of those voices to turn to, right, Chet? Exactly. There is, and in, uh, what bothers me is that in my in my public speaking presentation uh, that I do around the state, uh, one of the slides goes to the most recent Reader's Digest poll of trusted uh, people in the uh, in our culture. And it, you know, back in the day, remember Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America, et cetera. And their uh, presidents were uh, were very uh, well received in that light. These days, the the, the most recent poll they have. The most trusted person is uh, the the actor uh, Tom. Help me out here. Hanks. Hanks, exactly. Thank you. Tom Hanks is the most trusted man in America, and none of the top ten people are either government officials or or journalists. Mm. Well, we are talking about the impact of fake news. Before we go back to the callers, I want to talk about something that just happened in the news. There was the video you mentioned, Chad, that seemed to show uh, President Trump um, uh, slaughtering journalists, you know, very disturbing. Um, Some people are calling that video and including the National Press Photographers Association hate speech and, and, and saying that it incites violence. The creators, I understand, are saying it was satire. And I know that this is a debate that's been going on for a very long time. Where do you come down? It's very difficult. I mean, uh, anytime you start to um, try to define what this is, what news is, what satire is, what uh, commentary is, what fair use is, uh, all of those things are really gray areas. And I think it comes down to a more more of a cultural. Uh, uh, there's some there's something hardening about our culture with this uh, free for all uh, uh, that was not a part of traditional news uh, publishing. We we would have never have thought even if we'd become the you know sole owners of that thing, we would have never published it in uh, in the in the days of traditional mainstream journalism. It just wouldn't happen. So it's. But it does, yeah. it's, it, you, I think you've got to go in wanting not to do things like that as opposed to going into the office wanting to do things like that. And that cultural, that's a cultural shift, not, a, uh, not something you can deal with legally by defining it more clearly. It's like, you know, it's art. It, you know it when you see it. I was going to just jump in and say it does underscore uh, a, a terrible sort of, in addition to this rise of misinformation, disinformation, fake news, propaganda, another giant challenge out there for the news media is the safety and security of journalists uh, around the world. For the last decade, it has been declining. Uh, murders of journalists for just doing their work has been on the, inc- on the increase uh, Journalists going to jail with complete impunity is on the increase for the last decade. And in fact, last year, the United States joined the top 10 list of one of the most dangerous places when it comes to journalists being murdered because of the murder in the newsrooms um, in Annapolis last year. So it is there are direct real world impacts for that type of showing violence against journalists. It is it is happening really in the world, everywhere around the world. Another dangerous element of this uh, is the anonymity that social media has. When I was first starting out as a reporter, one of the best lessons I had was I'd cover the city council on Thursday night, and then Friday morning I'd be at a coffee table in the town, in the village cafe, with the same people that I had covered the night before. 
So you learn pretty quickly the impact that words even accidentally can have on another person, where, and you're accountable for it face-to-face. Uh, with social media, nobody knows nobody. We'll go to Randy, who's calling from Powell. Hi, Randy. Go ahead. Hey, Jennifer, a great show. I'm from Carroll Plantation, though. Oh, wow. We don't, we don't want to upset all 83 of us. So, Randy, uh, Carroll Plantation, t- show yeah. us, tell us where you are on the main map. Sure. You go up 95 till you get to the Lincoln exit, and then you head east on Route 6, and about halfway to uh, the Canadian border, now a third of the way, you'll come to a little town called Springfield. Turn left, go past the fairgrounds, be on your right, and that dirt road right at the end of fair, at the end of the fairgrounds, you go down there about three miles, and I'll put the coffee on. <laughs> well, thank you, and, and uh, I there bet you you're a little past uh, peak leaf season now, but um, what's, what's your um, thought about fake news? Sure. Uh, the thing is, you're on your Facebook, and you see a meme. Usually it's about some very, you know, topical polarizing issue, gun control, abortion, or left versus right, and something just doesn't look right. You know, your uh, fake news radar goes off. I go to Snopes. I go to factcheck.org. Check it out. Come back, and I tell my Facebook friend in a reply, geez, you know, it's not right. Send the link, and, uh, you know, good on you. Some of them don't care. You know, they just, they're going to do the work of the Russian bots anyway, and they'll reply like, oh, yeah, wow, look at that. And they just leave it out there. And there doesn't seem to be any uh, third-party mechanism if the meme or the post doesn't violate Facebook standards, you can't report it as this fake news thing to uh, to a third party so that they could correct it or what have you. So it's very frustrating because I, I take pride in not spewing any BS. Yeah, Randy, I, I think that you bring up a couple of really interesting points. And, and the first I'll throw to you, Jeannie, which is um, uh, Randy brings up a point that there are people out there who don't care if something is fake news or not. Well, there's a, a couple of, of, of what there's two ways I would say to address that. One, again, getting back to the platforms themselves, the Facebooks and Googles of the world and their own obligations, if they want to be corporate good citizens, is they can do a better job at burying these stories and they should. They have the technology, they have the capability. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is the market itself, that we can starve the fake news market if advertisers and brands and, and the, the, the big investors say, we're done, we don't want, right now, digital advertising dollars are programmatically, automatically through algorithms put out there in, in the social media landscape. They have the ability to control that. They can say to say, no, we want our ad dollars to be directed at uh, verifiable, trusted news sites, real news sites. And so we can. there's a way we can start starving this fake news as well. And I think we need to do both of those things. Yeah. And Chet, that's the second part of what Randy was saying, that when he finds out something's false, he wants there to be a third party he can report to. And, a, and it's a third party who might be able to actually do something about it. Yeah. And the, the, they are trying that in Silicon Valley. Uh, Facebook has a whole set of fact checkers. Gene uh, mentioned those earlier. And then there's a new level that they're putting together called the Oversight Board that will be there to even look at appeals of the fact checkers, uh, should we post this or not. And so that, that which will not be connected directly to Facebook uh, in theory. So there is an attempt now underway at some of these places, which, again, remember, have never been required to do this, so it's all new to them, to put in some sort of uh, oversight board that, that could do what the caller was looking for. 
Randy, thank you so much for your call. And uh, I think it's our first call from Carol Plantation. Very fun. Thank you. Um, we're going to go to Lawton in Penobscot. Hi, Lawton. Go ahead. Hi. We're without power here, so I'm calling you on my rotary phone. Oh, <laughs> excellent. I, I have one, too. I'd be right in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're listening on your um, battery-operated radio. Or is it a hand crank? I, I got a dial phone and a battery-operated radio. Okay. Go ahead. I guess my question is, do your guests feel like we're getting close to a point where it, of no return, where it'll be really difficult to decipher the real news from fake news? You know, in the presidential question here, supposing Trump is impeached and there is evidence, there are a lot of people almost religiously that will believe, won't believe it. They will say it's fake news, it's the deep state, it's the liberal news media. How do we combat that? I don't know that there's uh, that. Uh, I left my crystal ball at home today, but uh, it's hopefully it's it's nearer than farther that people will start to understand that uh, it's more than money involved here. There's a commercial side to publishing news and and the Facebooks of the world, which are sinking in money, and then there's the public service side of journalism and news. And I think that, the, as Gene mentioned, the market control, the market will eventually just, uh, you know, just force them to be more responsible. But Americans particularly, but probably most people in the world, require timely, relevant, solid information upon which to base their decisions every day. And if you go without it, it's kind of like this power outage we're going through now. You know, I automatically reach for a light switch that's not there anymore. So... Uh, you can't we don't notice it, but it's a really important part of our life to have solid, reliable, trustworthy information. And somehow I think that we, the people, will find a way to force that. Jeannie? I couldn't agree more. And that's exactly what we try to do all over the world, because we believe everyone everywhere deserves that information that helps them make good choices for their families and participate in their communities and hold their governments to account. We're going to get there we, because we need it. We want it. And, and it's so important to our lives. Lawton, thank you so much for your call. Janet on Facebook writes, I started posting, quote, when you hit forward or share, you assume responsibility for the veracity of what you post. Fact check, since I am sure you would not want to spread lies. I started this in 2008 and lost friends because of it. <laughs> All right. So we'll go to Steve calling from Auburn. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I wonder if you could speak uh, briefly about um, the repeal or the, or the lifting of the Propaganda Act in 2013 and how that may have played into some of the fake news and and, uh, and and people being responsible for the fake news that they are spreading. Um, if you could just give us a little enlightenment on that, that would be great. Um, Chet is shaking his head. Jean, Jeannie, I can't see you. Is this I something don't, you, you, know, you don't know? I'm not familiar that either. Yeah. No. Oh, so sorry about that, Steve. Um, we have an email from Tim. It seems to be a constitutional nightmare to regulate free speech on those platforms. But could prohibition of official campaign advertising and social media at least help mitigate the disturbance of fake news in elections? Also, that would help lawmakers have an avenue, an avenue to police campaigns and their ability to pay for the spread of disinformation. So Tim's idea, um, just say you can't advertise if you're a political campaign on social media. Chat, you're shaking your head. 
no, that's not going to work, I'm afraid. It's, it's, it's uh, so deeply built into the system. that I mean, people have been lying about other candidates since uh, George Washington's days. And it, uh, the ability to have as free and open and expressive uh, exchange as possible, I think, is critical to our democracy. And, you know, you see it in these debates that the presidential candidates are having and the, and the, the um, profiles in the, the local newspaper recently about upcoming city council elections. That, you know, that's the kind of information that you just have to look at each candidate's uh, approach and what they say and how they say it. And, and some of this is our responsibility in that critical thinking aspect we talked about earlier to, to know uh, what, what uh, smells right and what doesn't. An email from Greg. I was talking with my 30-year-old son about how difficult it is to find real news. His comment to me was, quote, Papa, news is over. Jeannie, I suspect you beg to disagree. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do disagree. I, I think it's interesting. I think when we think about how to rebuild trust in the media, I think getting to as local a news as possible, getting back to what Chet was saying about being held accountable as a journalist, even thinking about you, Jennifer, people know who you are. MPV, uh, Maine Public is providing a service that we all know where to go if, if, if we disagree with something that you might be saying. And so as we slowly rebuild the trust in news, I, I think working and focusing at the local news level first, which is unfortunately the one that's being hit the hardest when it comes to the market forces against news, yeah. but I think reinvesting in local news recommitting to making sure that we have the news that is most relevant to our lives available will slowly build, rebuild that trust around the world. News will never die. And I must, uh, I must confess, speaking on behalf of no one, that uh, my newspaper colleagues were not the quickest, most innovative people in the world when this, this threat started to arise. And I think the young man who was quoted is probably right for his generation that the newspapers and the traditional sources have not have not remained relevant to them, and we need to look at uh, how to make, uh, do that better. I want to return to, for these last few minutes, to talking about the election. Bonnie on Facebook writes, don't count on social media. Do your homework on the candidates. People lead busy lives. How much homework are they expected to do? And how much might this affect the election, Jeannie? Well, I, th I agree that people do need to do their homework and they'll do as much as they're able to do and commit to do. Uh, the debates are in a fantastic format. Most election offices publish, you know, fantastic non-biased information. I, I, it's hard to answer that question, but I do think it depends on the individual. But we have an individual responsibility if we're going out to vote. And I would add that uh, you should do your homework about where you're getting your homework. Uh, uh, just to make sure that your <laughs> great point <laughs> that your uh, sources. Are, are giving both sides of the issue. Isn't part of the issue, though, Chet, that some of the, um, you know, people know NPR, people know the New York Times, people know the Portland Press-Herald, but there are news outlets that are legitimate that didn't used to exist. For example, BuzzFeed. That's a silly name. It does not sound like a legitimate news organization, but it is. Uh, look, I, I'm a, a grizzled old ink-stained newspaper guy, but uh, if newspapers stopped killing trees, it wouldn't be the worst thing that ever happened in American history. I don't care what the platform is. You need to uh, abide by these traditional values, not necessarily the traditional delivery systems. Okay. Well, such an interesting conversation. I can't believe it's over. The voice you just heard, Chet Lunner, former Maine newspaper editor. He served in various positions with the federal government, including with Homeland Security and Jeannie 
Burgo, who is president of the nonprofit news organization Internews. One of our callers mentioned Snopes. Off the top of your head, do either one of you want to throw another fact-checking website out there that our audience might like to hear? PolitiFact is good. NewsGuard is good. NewsGuard, Snopes. Okay. Lucy Suchek ran the board today. Main Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You've been listening to Main Calling on Maine Public Radio.